podcast friends. Let me tell you about this amazing hotel booking app, Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight is an app that helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute. It is perfect for a spontaneous getaway or indulging in a little staycation. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. That's swoop. So what are you waiting for? Get in on these killer last minute deals and download the Hotel Tonight app now. My friends, let me also tell you about Rudy's Barbershop. With 29 shops across the country, Rudy's Barbershop is the original modern barbershop. Now they are bringing their 25 years of experience to a line of hair and body products that smell great and work effortlessly. I want to give my own personal testament to smelling great and working effortlessly. I've been using the shampoo and the body wash. It is absolutely appropriate for an adult man like myself. All of Rudy's products, including shampoo, conditioner, body wash, and more are made in the USA, never tested on animals, and use only the very best ingredients available. To learn more, visit rudysbarbershop.com. That's R-U-D-Y-S barbershop.com and enter offer code carbs to receive 25% off your first order from Rudy's website. That's R-U-D-Y-S barbershop.com offer code C-A-R-B-S carbs to receive 25% off your first order from Rudy's website. Podcast Pals, welcome back to another edition of House of Cards, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My friends, as you know, this is a food podcast for the hungry people, by the hungry people, and I am your hungry host, Joe House. Very excited for today's show. We have as a guest, Chef Michael Twitty who is a culinary and cultural historian responsible for the first blog devoted to African-American historic foodways. He has a book that was just recently published, The Cooking Gene, A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the Old South. Our own Hannah Georges of TheRinger.com did a profile of Brother Twitty in connection with The Ringer's South Week, and his story jumped off the page at me, and I knew I had to have him, and then I found out through a little research he is from the DMV, so I had to compare notes with him about the food scene back in the 80s here in the Washington, D.C., greater metropolitan area. I think you're going to like this conversation quite a bit. Of course, we have food news as well, the very first ever House of Carbs live taste testing as promised. Juliet and I jump on the Lay's 2017 chip flavor contest. We have the crispy taco, the fried green tomato, and the everything bagel with cream cheese. You have to listen for the results. But let's go ahead and check in with Chef Michael Twitty. Let's get in that belly, my friends. All right, podcast pals, my guest today is a culinary and cultural historian, the creator of Afro Culinaria, the first blog devoted to African-American historic foodways and their legacies. He has been honored by FirstWeFeast.com as one of the 20 greatest food bloggers of all time and named one of the 50 people who are changing the South by Southern Living. He has a book that was just recently published called The Cooking Gene, A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the Old South. Welcome to House of Carbs, Michael Twitty. Well, thank you very much. You got it. So, so, so Brother Twitty, uh, I have to tell you... Um, the, the, the reason we are connected today is because our Ringer colleague, Hannah Georges, who I believe came down and visited with you 
down mm-hmm. in Colonial Williamsburg, um, wrote a really interesting article about you uh, for the Ringer South Week, where the Ringer um, featured a bunch of stories kind of celebrating the rich culture and, 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 and enduring legacy of, of the South. And um, her, sto- your, her story about you leapt off the page at me for, for a whole variety of reasons, including um, the connection to the, the, the Washington, D.C. area, I understand that you grew up uh, in in the DMV, which happens yep. to be my hometown. Is that right? That's right. So uh, the second generation. Yeah. So what I'm interested in, if we can go all the way back, is kind of the origin story. Um, how did you find your way into uh, the, your, your interest in in Southern food? Well, you know, the first thing is that people need to understand there's two great things about that area. One year surrounded by um, museums and living history and historical sites. Um, that's just a part of the culture. Um, it's a lot of, you know, a lot of people's first job, you know, is in is one of those institutions. And the next thing is that D.C. is a very odd place, much like Baltimore or Louisville or St. Louis or Austin. These are cities that are sort of like the hinge of the South and the rest of the country. Um, and if you're black, Washington, D.C. was a surrogated city, de facto, um, up until the Civil Rights Movement. So there was, you know, there's no, no pretenses as far as my father was concerned, being born in the city and being raised in the city in the 30s and 40s about where he stood. And the culture of the people was black and Southern. There's, there's a very... There's no such thing as uh, black culture in America that's not Southern, ultimately in origin. It doesn't matter that someone's born in Detroit or Oakland or Boston. If you have, if your people were here already and they were migrants, that culture and that food culture persisted. I mean, we had iced tea every night. I didn't know that everybody didn't have iced tea every night for dinner, you know, with their dinner. Yeah, when I sure. first heard about somebody having milk with the dinner, I was like, "That's so disgusting! Who has milk with their food? <laughs> that's, that's gross." Milk gives you milk gives you uh, stomach cramps. Right. But you see, that's my that was my worldview: black, uh-huh. lactose intolerant, and southern. So, <laughs> so that's where you know. That's, I, I count myself lucky that the you know the DMV as we like to call it now, because it's very hard to say. You know, people will ask you. They used to say, remember they used to say, are you from D.C.? And it's, yeah, I'm from D.C. Because you, you couldn't tell them where Annandale was or, right. you know, Potomac or, or Columbia, but you could tell them D.C. I'm like, well, do you actually live in D.C.? And that's a, it's a, such a weird question. So we, now we say DMV because, as you well know, we spend our lives bouncing around that beltway. And that's it's, right. And, and, and even though we look at each other's burbs as being the other, the other side of the world and, and horrible, you know, that old game. You're from Montgomery yes, County. We're from Loudoun County. I don't understand how you all lay things out, and it's the same exact strip malls, the same exact nonsense, but um, right. same exact weather. But you know, now we have sort of a unified identity as these people who live inside the Beltway, and I'm, and I'm very proud of that. You know, we were multicultural. We were um, grounded in history and our heritage, and let's face it, we you know we had a world where you could go to the museum for free and a lot of museums yeah. you could be self-educated um so it's a great place to grow up in yeah i i i obviously agree uh i celebrate the dmv every chance i get uh through this through this medium i'm interested in how uh food became a passion of yours and whether the multiculturalism that you just referenced um that you sort of grew up in here in the dmv um, played a role in kind of, you know, uh, sparking your, your food interests? Well, absolutely, because, you know, I, I tell it like this. When we were growing up, everybody had an extended family household. And that was because so many people came from different backgrounds. You know, in my, you know, elementary, middle, high school years, um, in Maryland at least, we were Iranian, we were Hmong, we were... Um, a Nigerian, we were Jamaican, we were Japanese, we were Korean, we were Jewish, we were Italian, etc. 
Right. And when you went into someone's house, grandpa, grandma, an elderly aunt or uncle, or extended cousins would be there. You had to be able to say in, in whatever language, hi, goodbye, thank you, where's the bathroom, and can someone still come out to play? And then when you sat down, I mean, you, you almost never went over someone's house without eating something. And see, back then, we didn't have any smartphones to take pictures of the food and sit around to ten of your friends and go, what am I eating? What the hell is this? So, you know, you literally had to take your no thank you bite or whatever it was, you know, prayed it, yeah. it wasn't something horrifying. And if you liked <laughs> it, you really liked it. Yeah. And I remember I like squid chips from my Korean friends. And I begged huh. my mother for squid chips. My mother said, hell no, when I bring squid chips into this house. <laughs> so I would sneak squid chips into the house. Right. Um, but you had to go you had to go to the school library, man, with that with that damn card catalog. I recall. Find a cookbook, hope the cookbook had the thing in it, so you could verify whether or not you've eaten something um that is a mortal sin against your religion. And that's how it worked. And so that's how I figured out and found out about people's food culture. And it was for me, it was a way in to the worldview and mind of my neighbors. I felt that very strongly. That if you're going to live in a salad bowl of America, you should take advantage of the fact that the world has come to you and not be ignorant of it. So yeah, right. um, from the time I was very little, it was like, okay, you know, trying people's culture through food, awesome. But then also learning more about them, not limiting it to the food. You know, what, is, what does it mean to be them? Not just what they mean on the plate, but et cetera. And then, of course, when you go back home, you have the foresight to think and go, whoa. What do we do that they do that tells me something about myself, where we come from? How do I explain this very um, seemingly niche provincial existence as a black American to someone who's come over from another country who may not understand our history? And so you put all that together, that and plus interest in living history and teaching, um, and that, that's where my life passion comes from. So you've um, touched on a handful of things. Um a sort of passion for research. So you describe and mm -hmm. going to the library to check the card catalog. Now I was content to go to my, my next door neighbor who was Ecuadorian. Uh, his, his parents are from the, um, you know, his dad worked for the world bank and just eat the food and enjoy it and say, Hey, this is great. But I didn't have that. I didn't go <laughs> take that extra step in terms of, you know, doing the research about, you know, sort of, you know, what, what were the elements of, of how those dishes came together um, I'm interested in, in uh, talking to you about your background as a, as a historian, and particularly the, the Southern Discomfort Tour, which I, I think now you have sort of landed in Colonial Williamsburg, but um, how did you find your way into the, the Southern Discomfort Tour? And maybe it'd be helpful to, to tell folks what the Southern Discomfort Tour was all about. So um, in 2011... Um, my former partner and I um, were talking and I said, I really want to travel around the South looking for my food and family roots. And uh, he's like, well, where are you going to get the money from? And so, well, there's this cool thing called crowdfunding. People will just give us the money. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's that easy, huh? You, you think it's that easy to run a crowdfunding campaign? And it was not easy, but we actually met our goal. We, had, we got a goal of $8,000. Um, including 500 of which it went to, you know, a, a busted tire on the road, which I'm grateful <laughs> that we had. And um, we made three big trips. The first one went all the way from Maryland to uh, Louisiana, Texas. Mm. And then the second and third ones were basically up and down the south, southeastern seaboard. You know, one was more mountainous, one was more Piedmont and coast. Um, and then there were sub su subsequent trips through Kentucky, through Tennessee, uh, trips I made all the way through Arkansas and East Texas. So I kind of grandfathered those into that, even though they weren't on the same tab. The whole idea being that, you know, people talk a lot about the South, but very few people actually see the entire South. So I kept myself very lucky, but I call it the Southern Discomfort Tour because obviously it's a play on the term, the name Southern Comfort. And mm -hmm. the idea that Southern food is supposed to be comforting and down home and supposed to erase all your worries. And I'm like, wait a minute, hold up. This cuisine and this cookery was born out of immense strife, struggle, and tragedy. Poor folks in the South didn't eat that way because they wanted to, because they had to. They had to survive. Our native food comes from, 
you know, our original, our real original sin, which is native removal and displacement. And our other food comes from our second original sin as a country, which is, which is slavery, specifically the enslavement of Africans and their descendants. So for us to sort of like act as though this food comes out of, you know, ex nihilo comes out of nowhere and doesn't have any emotional cultural, social baggage is nonsense. Mm-hmm. So that's why I use the term Southern discomfort, because I want people to eat the discomfort food and not just the comfort food. This comfort food basically being the ideas behind how Southern food came to be and Southern culture came to be. And I feel, I honestly feel that if we're dishonest about things, we try to, you know, it's like with the you know, current issue with sports. Um, we try to cover it up as in, oh, look at those rich black people running up and down the field. They run up and down the field, run up and down the court. Everything's great. We have erased 400 years of oppression. No, you haven't. You haven't at all. And so when those folks talk back, it's like, where are they talking back? Well, this, is, this is so surprising. <laughs> like, uh, same thing yeah. with food. Food, right. you know, I was told as an early, you know, when I started writing about food, especially writing about Southern food, black food, and Jewish food, since I'm also Jewish, um, I was told often, well, just focus on the food. Uh, none of that... Stop that social justice, social issue, da 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 stuff. And I couldn't. I just I just resisted that. And I'm glad I did. Because I'd just be another, you know, person grinning and smiling your face talking about, you know, watermelon, black eyed peas, fried chicken and rice, ain't those Negroes so nice. And I can't do that. That's not my that's not my brand. That's not how I feel. Yeah, right. I, and I'm interested in, in hearing the background of this. I know that um part of the tours included um, your commitment to to recreating historically accurate meals at historical sites, you know, including plantations made by you know cooks that were slaves, in order to mm-hmm. educate your guests uh, about that underrepresented side of of Southern food. Now, you you described you know the three tours you went on. Were you doing those um, historical? Uh, uh, recreate rec- recreating dinners. I'm sorry. <laughs> in those in those moments, yeah. I mean, it wasn't like every single stop, but um, right. You know, whenever we came across a living history site, farm, plantation, where they could accommodate me cooking that way, and a fireplace, etc., or outdoors, we did it, and it really drew in a lot of people who were at, who were looking at their own family stories. And I, I will say this much. Everybody testified to something. You know, it wasn't just black folks. Black folks, okay. white people, people from other countries who just simply said, oh, I know about that because we used to cook like that where I come from. Mm-hmm. And that's what made it so powerful is that people who normally would not talk about these things in public, in mixed company, would open their mouths and have a conversation the most uh, important to me was when I was in Mississippi and one of the elders down there who um, his name is Sir Boxley and he focuses on the domestic slave trade to Natchez. That was one of the main places people went to when they went mm-hmm. overland. And he, we were met at this, you know, meal I was preparing by James Meredith who integrated the university of Mississippi you know, well, you know, how does that feel to meet somebody who actually got shot, was shot, was beaten, had to have, you know, the National Guard help him integrate, you know, a, a university. And then we had people sitting around, you know, pulling, you know, a hus off a of corn and, you know, shelling peas and cutting peaches, white and black, who had never met each other who were all from Natchez, who had been born and raised in Natchez, the grandparents, parents, everybody born and raised in Natchez, who'd never met each other. And one white lady who came to that particular meal said to me, this is the largest integrated gathering I've ever seen in Natchez. Hmm. And I thank you for that. And I said, well, don't thank me. You know, thank, you know, everybody should thank themselves for showing up. But it was very powerful to me because I assumed, and you know what assuming does, it makes an asset of you and me, right. that, you know, everybody just does this. Everybody confronts their social and societal demons. Everybody just gets over it and just sits down together and acts like they're friends. And I was told, you know, in in not so uh, unclear a fashion, um, that everybody, everybody, black and white, said, this is not common. 
we would like to do more of this, but this is not common. This is not usual. And so the more we did that, it was more powerful for me. Yeah, right. And it was the food that was that that created the common ground and the the sort of comfort space for folks to come together, right? Right, right. And so talk to me a little bit, the logistics of going from site to site, city to city, state to state, and you know, trying to set up camp and do, uh, you know, recreate that kind of experience, that had to have been a a pretty daunting undertaking. Yeah, yeah. You go, no, 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 not really. I mean, it's something that you kind of get used to. I mean. Well, like, how about the ingredients? You you would just go and try and local source? Yeah, we did a lot of that, um, but I would also hit people up before I showed up, Uh and they would have things. They would have things either purchased or get things from farmers. Um, I try to stay within the seasons, but not always. I mean, I'm not. I'm not ashamed of saying you will see an occasional Win Dixie, Piggly Wiggly, or Food Lion or Kroger Uh bag behind me. But you know, I try to keep the vegetables and the fruit local and historical, if possible. Um, you know, local pigs, local chickens, all that kind of good stuff. But I think the more important part is people to actually see the process, hear about the individual cooks that were on these historic plantations and small farms and urban households, than it is to be completely sort of like accurate. I mean, the question you get in living history is always, is the fire real? Is the food real? Did you churn that butter? And I'm like, do you want to churn the butter? I mean, I've literally, I've literally <laughs> given people to churn yeah. and be like, okay, no, you're going to talk some shit. Look here, churn this damn butter. Yeah, you know, do right. you know, do you know how to churn butter? Do you know how to milk a cow? Let me, let's go there. You want to be so tough. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm, I'm not a meanie. I'm not that mean. That's my inner Luther talking, my inner Nat Turner. <laughs> but, you know, it's, but people do that. They're testing your metal as in authenticity and validity. And I'm not a damn ghost. Right. I'm a 21st century person. You know, yeah. I'm not a ghost. I'm not an apparition from the past. If I was, I'd be a pretty irate one, I think. Um, <laughs> but the bottom line is, is that, you know, people's expectations are that what you're doing is an illusion. And like, no, honey, this is not a drag show. This is an educational right. process. You really That's need to right. separate right. that fantasy from the reality. So I, I want to fast forward. Uh, obviously, the Son of Discomfort tour served as kind of the on-the-ground underpinnings for the book. How much time did you have to sort of take off from that experience to, to get the book done? Or did you take well, any time off? Totally separate. I got it. And here's how it works. 2013, Paula Dean stuff happened. I yes. commented nine days late. And even though I did that, my response to her went viral. That's right. Um, because, I mean, what Black America did was what Black America always has done, and mostly out of self-preservation. We purse our lips, we shake our head, we breathe heavy, and nobody knows how we actually feel because we suppress it. And we've done that for 400 years because we want to keep our jobs, because we wanted to get by, or we got really loud knowing that that was going to be the end of it for us. So um, these things have precedent. My, yeah, if, if you don't, me, I'm sorry. I, was, I only want to interrupt because it, it might be the case that not every uh, listener knows the backstory, and I just want to give a quick, you know, sure, um, sure, sure. Paula Deen's, just, yeah, Paula Dean right. was like, um, she was the the inward thing was the most just glaring aspect, right? Um, she was she was in a dispute with some of her former employees. They were alleging that she was using the N-word, that she was an awful boss, that she was stealing ideas, that she was using her and her brother had unfair labor practices. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I thought that the media's skewering of Paula Dean was a little off. First of all, every black person said, oh, a 60 plus year old white woman from Georgia said the N-word in her lifetime. Get out of here. What a big surprise. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was the first issue, you know, right. not accepting the racism, but he's going, you know, this is not, this is, come on. And the second part of it was for me, like, you're doing this because she's a fat woman. You're doing it because she's Southern. Mm-hmm. And that angered me because body has nothing to do with brains. Being a woman does not mean 
should should not mean people should be looked at for double the trouble. Um, there are double standards there, but that's how it works in this world. We learned that last November. And then comes the Southern part, this willingness of America in general to indict Southerners, especially white Southerners, as being ignorant and being backward and being um, the source of all evil. We can just get rid of those ignorant Southern people. I'm like, no, 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 That's not, we're not going to focus on that. Right. We're just going to say Paula Dean committed sins like everybody else does. I don't mean that in a religious sense. And on top of that, where are the black chefs? Why are we talking about their role? Currently, historically, creating the food that Paula and Tyler and all these other people on TV, the Paul Prudhomes, the Justin Wilsons get famous for and get to be millionaires for, that was created by enslaved people. They were the catalyst of this cuisine. Mm-hmm. And with them, the poor, plain white folks of the South, Native Americans, and other outliers. So why, why don't we have a voice? Why do you see only one or two black food personalities on TV at a time? And how come, you know, there's not a diversity of those voices in food media? That's right. Well, that said, you know, and it, and it was also a message of reconciliation and healing. Because I was just like, no, this is not, you know, I'm tired of fighting with white people over race. You know, I, I, I would rather just tell my truth, hear their truth, hopefully get them to a middle ground and agree not to hate each other instead of continuing this constant stream of um, flashpoints that we never seem to get out of. So yeah. because of that, I had my piece went viral. Um, I had 12 agents contact me out of nowhere. And that's, a you know, if you feel folks who want to write, who weren't getting in the writing game, you know, unfortunately... There's that question of, should I have an agent, should I not? And um, it, it's kind of sad, but you kind of need to have one if you want to do the big stuff. Because ultimately, they have the networking, um, they have the they have the powers. Access. To, uh, you know, access, right. They have access to people who can actually give yeah. you a significant um, deal or project. Um, and, I, and I found a good one. And um, I was immediately asked, do you have something, you know, to write about? And I hadn't planned on writing a book <laughs> uh-huh. from this project, but here I had thousands of photographs, acres of words, notes, journals, you know, memories, and that got turned into the cooking gene. Um, it's not, you know, it's not a, I got to warn people, it's not a cookbook. And I, and I want to caution folks, just like with that early thing about the food not being the idol in what I do, it's the human stories. And for me, this book focuses on, you know, part of partly on my story, but not all all of it, mm-hmm. and my ancestors who were enslaved. I wanted to be able to locate myself in the history that I study, and talk about the food from Africa to America, from slavery to freedom, in such a way that humanized them, and brought their lives out as everyday people. I wanted to write a culinary version of Roots, and also explain to people how come I've chosen to be, you know, as I describe it the first uh, colonial antebellum black chef since slavery in 150 mm-hmm. years, because there was a unique skill set and culture set that, you know, for all sorts of purposes has died out and will die if it's not continued. Right. Um, and so for me, this book was just about a testimony to that. And the fact that every, everybody, you, me, every mama, every grandmama, every, Every boy likes to cook, every girl likes to cook, brings their identity with them into the kitchen. You don't leave your baggage at the door. You bring right. it in with you. People can taste it in your food. People know your story by the way your food tastes. Mm-hmm. And that's why I had to bring it in with me. So how long uh, have you been um, down in, in Colonial Williamsburg? How long has that been a, a project? So I've been um, tinkering around with CW for years. Um, (laughs) in many ways, but this Uh year I'm the revolutionary in residence. So I've spent the past year coming down here for about a week or two each month. And I do a couple of demonstrations, uh, mostly at the Peyton Randolph house where the program, um, in African-American foodways is based cooking with my friend, chef Harold Caldwell, um, and others to interpret, you know, 18th century, African-American foodways in the American South, such as it was. And yeah. we, you know, formally, you know, used to do just Virginia stuff. 
and now we do Virginia, Chesapeake, Maryland, Virginia, Northern food, Charleston, mm-hmm. Low Country food, New Orleans food, basically telling the story of what we know and what we can surmise was being cooked in the 18th century by the hands of black cooks. And also right. telling the story of how those cooks interacted with the other cultures around them to create Southern food. It's very important people understand. We're not saying that African-American cooks did everything or innovated or invented everything. But we're saying that in their hands, these different strands of European, Native, African, and Asian foodways yeah. were woven into what we know as Southern foodways. So if, if uh, somebody like me um, that, that's close enough to, to Colonial Williamsburg wanted to come down and, and, you know, take in the experience. And I'd love to bring my seven-year-old down. How much longer is the program running? Well, through the end of the year. And then um, I'm buddy-buddy, so there'll be other times when I'm just going to show up and cook. You know, I have clothes now, so I'm going to show up and cook and and have fun. I'll put those on my blog and people will know. I should have done a better job about that this year, but this year was the year the book came out, so... Every day up until August 1st was me running around and not thinking about the day-to-day, you know, operation of um, right. keeping Mr. Freelancer going. So, <laughs> but I have definitely have, you know, um, in the weekend of October 13th and sometime in November and December, I'll be there. And like, again, I'm, I'm friends, a lifelong friend and uh, client with the foundation. So um, this won't be my last turn on the radio. That's great. Um, I have a couple kind of personal questions for you. What do sure. you cook for yourself? Oh my gosh. Um, simple, simple stuff. I mean, the last meal that I made at home and I'm rarely at home these days, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, that's why I like cooking on the hearth, by the way. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't eat a ton of the food that I make. I mostly it's the, 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 to watch people's faces. Like the last time I was here and I made peach cobbler, mm. you know, on the open hearth oh with my. like a crumble topping with fresh Incredible. Virginia peaches and fresh milk from the cow that they milked. Oh, one of the oh, red Devon oh cows. And we, yes. yeah, the fresh butter and all that. People went nuts. Yes. And then just to see the look yeah, on their I'm faces. I'm going nuts. Right? And it, I mean, it didn't burn. It didn't burn, thank God. And it was pretty <laughs> and it was unctuous and it was sweet and it was delicious. You know, yes. and, and people just see, that's, that's, the, what, that's what feeds me. But, uh-huh. you know, the last meal I made at home was egg noodles, and uh, I took a, p- a big old chunk of Angus uh, chuck roast, threw it in a crock pot, oh. threw some uh, Korean okay. hot peppers in there and soy sauce and some other things and made some bulgogi beef over with broccoli stalks and carrots over egg noodles. And I was happy. So that's a DMV meal right there. I mean, Korean food is so available and prominent here in the DMV. Mm-hmm. I didn't really understand it until I traveled in other places, how lucky we have it here. You mentioned Annandale earlier and the incredible array of, of Korean options there in, in, in Annandale. All right, I have uh, two more two more questions for you. Um, sure. Who's cooking right now? I know you don't have a, a lot of time to be out sampling other chefs, but whose cooking have you encountered over like the last year or so that, that you admire where you, ha- you, you encountered, uh, you know, a chef and you had a couple bites and you said, wow, this is incredible. Stephen Miller, um, sorry, Stephen Satterfield, dad at Miller union. Yeah. Stephen uh-huh. Satterfield in Atlanta. Um, okay. Just, you know, it's Southern food, but it's, it's different because he's using Southern ingredients in such a fresh way um, I don't want to. I don't want to use any labels in his food that he doesn't imply on his. But if I, were from an outsider's kind of standpoint, he's like treating you know field peas and okra and uh, watermelon and um, hot peppers and um, our seafood the way someone from California might. Mm-hmm. And he's totally southern. You know, he's got a he's got a beautiful gumbo he makes, and oh. um, I just admire that. I admire people who take the things that we're familiar with that are part of our heritage and turn them into something new, mm-hmm. but familiar. And I just yeah. loved every second of that meal. It was, it was really great. And the creativity that goes into it. And it wasn't too frilly either. You know, I really okay. like people who do five or seven ingredients mm-hmm. and that's it. Yep. And can use that to just change your world as far as one ingredient or two of those star ingredients are concerned. So yeah, that was that an makes- amazing meal. That makes a lot of sense. Now, the last thing, I'm going to spring this on you. 
so I, um, I apologize in advance for not giving you much time to think about this. One of the things we like to ask guests of your, your kind of stature on the show, last meal on earth. Uh, name, name, it could be one thing. It could be five things. This is going to be your last meal on planet earth. Um, That's let, a let's horrible hear, question. Let's, let's hear the list. <laughs> I was so not death oriented. So that's a horrible question, but I'll do it anyway. Um, yeah. because it, you know, you don't want to ever answer that question. Cause if you see those food show up at one time, you're like, Oh hell no. <laughs> Give me some ramen. Damn it. I ain't eating that. <laughs> Uh, I want that. Uh, well, I know what that I mean, means. I, my, hot dogs are definitely on my list, so it's a you know. No, nah, I, 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 you know, first of all, there's the love of all love, which is barbecue, mm-hmm. which to me is not mushy. It's not, it's not t- so tender. It fall, that fall of the bone on drives me crazy. You know, it yep. should be toothy. It should be you know not tough, but it should be toothy. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I like to have the bone in my hand and like throw it over my shoulder. Um. Fried chicken is like God's gift to the world. Yes. I mean, I hate to be so stereotypically black about that one, but I don't care. Um, well, that's all there is to it. Fried I, chicken I, came I, from God. God, God is Morgan Freeman, to... so that's all there is to it. And <laughs> on top of that, I think red rice. Red rice was, you know, when my grandmother's time called Spanish rice. Wasn't nothing Spanish about it. It's uh-huh. as African as you get. Low country African. Call it jollof rice in West Africa. You can you can you can put jollof rice with that red rice. Either All one right. work, okay. but it's just like the t- combination of tomato, hot peppers, onion, bell pepper, and other good stuff is just, you know, fantastic. I mean, that is one of those transatlantic soul foods that, you know, you got to have. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Lord. Apple apple crisp. Apple crumble. Okay. okay. My mother made that. My mother, blessed memory, made that stuff. And I got to tell you, before my mother passed away... I had the opportunity of making for her an apple crisp where she went, that was the best apple crisp I ever had. You know how hard it was to get my mother to say something like that? Wow. Incredible. Especially when I'm making it. Oh, my God. Right. (laughs) Yeah, that was was special to me. That's incredible. And sauteed greens. I used to hate, I mean, I was a boy boy. I mean, no, meat, meat, meat. But then when I started growing up and actually making, growing things and making them. Ah. To have a really satisfying plate of kale and collard greens, you know, chiffonade cooked with ginger and garlic and peppers and mm. onions. I could eat that over rice any day and be happy. Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm I haven't that's an incredible meal. Is there is there a libation that would go with that? Oh, a libation, get out of here. I, you know, I, I it's never gonna be great. You know what? I, I now that I've like really discovered um the joy of Southern folk wine. You know, we used to have these, you know, wild fruit things my grandmother used to make. And she put them in, you know, old wine jugs, uh-huh. which, would ex- which would occasionally explode. Um, <laughs> and we're wondering, like, who shot who now? It was actually this, you know, this vinegary wine all over the floor. But uh-huh. she was good at it, man. When it was good, it was good. And yep. you would strain it and it would be cloudy. But I'm going to tell you something. That mess will put you to sleep. So I, I would have to say my grandmother's muscadine wine, mm. which I have not tasted in 30-something years, mm-hmm. which I intend to recreate one day, will oh, probably awesome. be the libation. All right. That a persimmon Chef beer. Twitty, that, that, that's incredible. I'm looking forward to re-listening to this and then putting pen to paper and taking down the notes on that. We're going to put them up on, on the ringer. We'll put them up on our social media. That last meal on earth is an incredible meal. And I, I'm going to... I'm gonna, Try and, and and pick your brain and see if we can't recreate it. I'd love to connect sometime two two DMVers and see if we could we can't sample a few of those items, especially the red beans uh, and rice. That we got to have that one. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for joining us on House of Carbs. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time, and and best of luck with the book and and keep killing it. Don't be surprised if I show up down in Colonial Williamsburg before the end of the year. No, 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 no. I appreciate it, and I want everybody to. Uh... Please buy this book. Please support this book. Projects like this don't happen because they're a nice idea or because mm-hmm. they're a, a good idea. Um, they happen because people say, well, maybe somebody will buy it. And by supporting projects like this, by buying this book, by talking about it, we let um, the world of media know that positive, good stories that bring people together um, are worth it.
And that's why that's how they invest in new ones. So I appreciate your support and everybody else's. Yeah, you have my support, and I can't wait to push it out uh, through all of our platforms. You, 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 that was a very eloquent way of describing why we all got to get it. So we're going. Everybody's going to get a Christmas present this year from me. Your book. Thank you, my brother. Thank you. All right. Big thanks to Chef Twitty really interesting conversation and i mean it i'm getting down to williamsburg before this this antebellum kitchen recreation is done at the end of 2017 i want to go try it um how about a quick word from our friends at spice islands for noticeably richer flavors in your recipes my podcast pals opt for premium spices from Spice Islands. By sun-drying many of their spices and de-stemming their chili peppers by hand, that's loving care. Spice Islands uses a craft approach to deliver the most authentic and intense flavor possible. They also take the extra steps to ensure richer flavors, like waiting for their dillweed to bloom before harvesting or milling their garlic to a true powder so it doesn't add grittiness to your dishes. Better yet, they maintain a strict standard for each item to ensure consistency, quality, and flavor. So whether you're looking for a flavor adventure or simply better tasting meals, fill your pantry with Spice Islands and taste the difference in every bottle. My friends, I encourage you to visit spiceislands.com slash house for more spice facts and delicious recipes, including one for spiced maple carrots. Oh, a quick, simple side to complement any meal. That's spiceislands.com slash house and pick up Spice Island spices in the premium spice section of your local retailers. Podcast pals, also a quick word from our great friends at Lisa Mattresses. What if you could give back while you slept? Lisa is an innovative direct-to-consumer online mattress brand that is also socially conscious, driven by the mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody. For every 10 mattresses Lisa sells, they donate one to a shelter through their 110 program. Best of all, Lisa's patented universal adaptive feel is designed for all types of sleepers and features three premium foam layers. They have a two-inch Avena, that's a trademarked foam top layer for cooling and breathability. They have a two-inch memory foam middle layer for body contouring and pressure relief. And then the six-inch dense core support for durability and structure for sleepers of all sizes. Podcast pals, I have to give a testament to this one. We have ordered one, my wife and I, for our little boy. We have the, uh, the twin in his brand new tent bed. And my wife and I, through the course of doing our bedtime stories with the little homie, are so enjoying this 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 uh, mattress. We're about to order the king size for mommy and daddy's bed because I'm a big sucker. I bought a big, uh, you know, gigantic king size mattress from the department store five years ago. That thing's I don't know. It won't fit in the trash, but we're getting the Lisa king size replacement. Count on it. Lisa is available online in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Germany. The 100%, 100% American-made mattress ships compressed in a box to your door so you can save a trip to the store. Super easy to order, Podcast Pals. It is about a 35-second experience. No wonder it's a Forbes Top 20 Startups to watch. Try a Lisa mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk-free with free shipping always and get $100 off. Wait till you see the prices. $100 off is a great deal when you go to Lisa. Lisa.com slash carbs. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash carbs. All right, as we do here at House of Carbs. Now time for a visit with our wonderful friend, the managing editor at The Ringer, host of the Bachelor Party and Jam Session podcast, the one, the only, Miss Juliet Littman. Welcome to food news. Hi, House. What's up? Hey, Juliet, this is a special food news. I am very excited for today. I know that we 
are stepping a little bit on the toes of the old food news experience that you and our good pal David Jacoby used to have uh, back at the Grantland, R.I.P. Grantland. R.I.P. Grantland, Um, indeed. We're doing a live taste test today. How about it? I'm pretty excited. I'm. It's. I just want to say it's 8:38 a.m. from here right now, and I cannot yeah. wait to get into these potato chips. <laughs> right. So we told the people, the hungry people, that we we're going to be sampling these Lay's, these new flavors of Lay's that I guess are competing. This is an annual thing. Is yes. that right? Yeah. What happens so- is. People suggest, like, you can, like, write in, people suggest uh, various flavors, and then a few of them get uh, selected by Lay's, and they're, like, kind of, they're prototypes, they're out in the market for a certain number of months, and then you can vote on your favorite, and one of them gets added to the rotation permanently. And it's called Lay's Do Us a Flavor. They do it every year. Do us a flavor. Does the person whose flavor gets chosen, do they win anything? Um, Not that I know of. <laughs> uh, pride, and probably a <laughs> pride. lot of Lay's. <laughs> Pride and lace, that those are two important things. I yeah. I think I would be satisfied with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will say, in years past, there had been a little bio of who su- who suggested them on the bag, and I'm looking at my my bag, my flavors here, and I don't see any information about who suggested them, which is kind of a bummer. I le- used to like that personalization. Well, I have to say, uh, I'll tell you this. I I'm somewhat. Um, relieved that there's no bio because I don't want my heartstring to get pulled in one way or the other. <laughs> I'd like to decide this with my tongue and my belly. Okay. Um, they have information on the three nominators on their website. So why don't we, well, you'll go through each one. We'll go through, we'll eat all three and then I'll fill you in on who suggested them afterwards. Yeah. But you'll give well, your look, unbiased look, take. Yeah, of course. But let's, let's save this. Let's let this, this be the dessert of okay. food news today. Let's, let's talk about some stories. Great. Well, there's a, there's a really big one in the coffee world, which is Nestle, the, you know, primarily known for its chocolates, has purchased the um, artisanal coffee brand Blue Bottle Coffee, which, and the amount, exact amount is not confirmed, but the internet is, says it's around $700 million. So that's a lot of money for coffee. That's like, a ton, seven hundred million dollars for coffee. Um, so that Blue Bottle is a brand that was like a dude who went into a shed and started making, yes. you know, out of his out of a. It was a passion project for him. It was. Right? It was a guy named James Freeman who had been living in Oakland, and he was a clarinetist. And in his spare time, when he was like touring with various, um, uh, like you know, symphonies or whatever companies he started like brewing his own coffee and then it turned into um a big brand and i used to live near one or i used to work near one excuse me like one of the first ones in san francisco when i lived there and it was like really popular i I used to work in the mission which is sort of like the hips the hipster ground zero of the bay area and on one end there was ritual coffee roasters and on the other there was blue bottle coffee and like people had their allegiances and i i think i think we can say blue bottle has won this war with least at least against ritual because they just got 700 million dollars that's a 700 million dollar w i would say now i i will i haven't had uh blue bottle i haven't had the the privilege yet It, it just arrived here in in the dmv Recently, there's a shop that opened up a brick and mortar um, down in Georgetown, and I uh, have an open mind. I'm very open minded when it comes to all uh, walks of life um, as it as it as it affects my tongue and my (laughs) belly. But uh, I will say I'm I'm not skeptical, but uh, the price point is a little high. So I'm I'm wondering. Well, what's uh, your go to coffee? Like, what do you have on a regular basis? Starbucks, because it's right around the corner from me. I mean, as I've discussed before, the, the mobile app is such an incentive to use Starbucks to just make it so easy for you that I, too, have Starbucks all the time. But here uh, in L.A., right by our office, we have a lot of fancy coffee options. And yeah. California just has so much fancy coffee, as does New York, and those are the two places I primarily am. And my biggest complaint is that it's just so slow. It's just I, I don't want to wait 10 minutes for my cup of coffee. Right. I mean, that's 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 the thing the, the the cost experience ratio needs to be in line. You can't ask me to overpay and, you know, stand around at least, you know, during during the workday. And especially here in Washington, D.C., um, folks 
who are going in for coffee. It's not a sit around kind of vibe here. Right. Uh, I mean, there are some folks um, that are using the Wi-Fi and so forth that populate the stores. But at least my experience here in in downtown D.C., people are want to get in and out with their coffee. Totally. That's why the Starbucks mobile app is so great. Um, Blue Bottle is good, though, if you do like pour over, pour over coffee or a cup at a time. It's just that's just never really been my jam. But I, I will say it's like it's cool that this one has. Um, sort of risen above because in the article in the New York, this is an article in the New York Times that kind of broke the sort of the definitive story on the news from last week. And um, it talks about how they're sort of like not snobby at all, which I, I do appreciate because that's kind of like one of the worst parts of the artisanal coffee craze. I went to an unnamed nearby coffee shop here in LA and I was like, do you guys have iced coffee? And they're like, we have cold brew. And I was like, well, what about just like regular iced coffee? And the guy was like, he paused and he said, we don't let our coffee sit around and die all day. And I was just like, okay, what? I'm out then. See you later. Like, it just doesn't, oh. doesn't need to be this kind of like judgment and what kind of coffee people like. Like, do people judge judge each other for having Bud Light? No. I, I don't. I love Bud Light. Right. I love Coors Light. Sure. I love all the lights. Yeah. I don't care. Right. So, like, why can't I just enjoy my regular iced coffee? It doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be so fancy all the time. So do we is is the import of this story that um, with all this money that there'll be more blue bottles will uh, help drive uh, uh, the availability of the product? Yes, and also they'll be doing more like grocery store products, like the way that a lot of these coffee brands go now is they start bottling for stores, so you don't only. Have so to- let's do that that tangent for ten seconds okay. because we, this is more more than we need to do on coffee probably. <laughs> but uh, are, do you? Do you buy those coffee products um, outside of the coffee stores? Dave Jacoby, the aforementioned, and I tasted a lot of them, and I never found one that was actually good, so no. I'm right there with you. There is a a wonderful artisanal joint here in the DMV that may be nationwide now called La Colombe. Yes. uh, No. Uh, And they do have a brick and mortar here that's probably been around for four or five years, and I so enjoyed... Uh, now, this was a moment I, I will go there when I have time. And so I get the idea of having some time to sit down and enjoy a cup of coffee. It's a good way to go meet up with like a business person sure. and have a, a little chat, have yeah, coffee. Right. Nice meeting. But I, I enjoyed it enough that I went online and bought a whole bunch of their cold brew in a bottle. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just didn't taste the same. Yeah, it's just not as good. It just wasn't as good. It doesn't it doesn't. Coffee is like an instant thing. You make it, you eat it, so you drink it, it's over. That's exactly right. Um, Notwithstanding it, people who think that it could die during the course of the day. Right. <laughs> also, I just want to say the other like kind of upshot here is that at least this is my own thoughts is that um, Nestle owns Nespresso and they have a deal with George Clooney. So I'm hoping to get some George Clooney uh, blue bottle commercials. That's that's my main goal here. <laughs> More Clooney. More that's Clo- what you really have. More Clooney. That's what I'm really interested in at the end of the day. I got it. I, I understand where you're coming from on that. All right. Yeah. What else do we got? Well, this this is um, sports related for the crossover fans. Yesterday, today is a Monday, Marshawn Lynch was in his hometown of Oakland. Obviously, he's on the Raiders now. And he had set up around the city to like all the various stations where he was just giving out Skittles. There were these like kind of like Skittles vending machines brought to you by Marshawn Lynch and the Oakland Raiders. Uh, and there were six, I think it was six locations across of Oakland. And he just is really riding hard for his favorite candy. And, and honestly, just making his presence known. Like Marshawn Lynch is back. And is it, are they free? Yes. So he's, he's putting up uh, vending machines to give out free Skittles. Yes. There were five of them, not six. Excuse me. And who, who's responsible for keeping them full? Um, I think it was like a one, it's, I think it was like a one day thing. So they're now uh, gone. Uh, yeah. So it was Cause a I was just going to say, if I knew there was free Skittles, that would be one part of my hustle for, was, for that day. It was for one day only, but I, I really okay. like it. It's just sort of like, he's not, he, he's really like formally owning this. So he was already closely associated with Skittles and now it's like, it's definite. Well, and, and it's his, uh, homecoming, to Oakland yesterday, his triumphant return. I think he had. I know. I he's on my fantasy team. I'm embarrassed to say. I know he had at least one touchdown. I think he might have had two. He had a great day yesterday. That's great. Great news uh, for fantasy your fantasy wise. team. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, he he is uh, a very, very, very welcome return to the NFL. His unconventional approach to the media aspect of it, and he's. 
nobody gives less Fs than Marshawn. And it's that's great. a very welcome thing in the in the No Fun League. Absolutely. While we're talking about uh, football players in the No Fun League, Tom Brady has a book coming out this week about his diet. Basically, it's called the TB12 Method. Uh, I hope to never see a copy in print in my hands. But, but in it, he reveals that he drinks up to 25 glasses of water per day. I mean, that's just too much water. That's too much. 25, House. That's like just crazy. That's so much water. It's, How many times does he have to pee? Well, that that's there's that. Um I don't know if you know this, Juliet, but water is flavorless. Yes, I did know that actually. But thanks. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's like I, I don't it's way too much on the side of, and then what I understand about all of the elements of his diet, way too much on the side of um food for function, not food for pleasure. Yeah, he would and, and and this that is not that goes against the House of Carbs ethos, I Absolutely. have to tell you. It also seems like he's constantly consuming. So it's sort of like because it's a constant between like water and he said he snacks a lot, there isn't really room for like fun. There's no like build up to a great dinner because he's like just constantly having a snack. Right. Now I, I look, I admire the dedication to um craft and to performance that that he I think he will deservedly be looked at back upon as not only the greatest NFL quarterback, but a true innovator in terms of what it takes to perform at a very high level at an age that was previously, you know, uh, understood to be the, the, you know, beyond his prime, well beyond his prime. And it's because of, you know, the combination of attention to stretching and, and, um, you know, an entire physical approach that goes along with nutrition. Um, they're, they're locked arm in arm. And it's it's a it's it's really you know sort of groundbreaking so much so that his trainer um, has become is, is starting to receive some acclaim or maybe he's already acclaimed and the athletes from other walks of life are interested and it's a whole business TB12 and and this trainer you know combined on the on on uh, a nutrition and physical approach to athletic longevity um, really interesting I just don't think it's any fun that's all. I agree. There's no fun. And you want to know what? Tom Brady's not fun. So let's stop talking about him. <laughs> I hate Tom Brady. By the way, another guy on my fantasy team, another great performance yesterday. Congrats, House. So happy for yeah. you. <laughs> I have Marshawn and Brady. How about it? Great stuff. Let's yeah. get into these chips. I've been looking at let's them for too it. long. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. They're I'm staring psyched. me in the face. I'm you, psyched. I'm, I want the people to hear. We're gonna be, I'm going to be opening the chips. Like this is... Neither one of us have have tried a single bite of any of these. What do you want to start with? Well, I just want to say probably my favorite top three meal for me, at least for all hours of the day, is an everything bagel with cream cheese, preferably scallion cream cheese. So I'm I just need to try these kettle cooked everything bagel with cream cheese chips. I'm so excited. All right. Let's open it up. Let's get into it. This is like a really big deal. I'm having one right now. I'm smelling it. There's poppy seeds in here. I'm sitting hmm. back. I don't want to crunch too loud on mic. Oh, people hate that, but I'm going to do it anyway. Hmm. All right. I'll let you have the first the first say on this one. Go ahead. It tastes like a sour cream and onion chip, which is not bad, but it's not everything bagel with cream cheese. Yeah, this is a delicious sour cream and onion potato chip. Yeah. Congratulations. With some poppy seeds thrown in the bag. Okay, this is out. Yeah. This, this is a delightful chip, but this is just not what it was advertised. So it's a great idea. Uh, you know the the it's all the rage. The everything bagel, that all spice mix that goes mm. on in everything mm. bagel, is mm. like all the rage. It's creeping into all kinds of um, food lineage. I I understand it's a real fad right now, um, and the idea of getting it onto a chip is sensible. Uh, these are sour cream and onion chips, and yeah. I I always like sour cream and onion. Me chips, too. But. My, I would say it's my favorite. Um, I would I would say my suggestion for Lay's if they want to give us another shot would be to use a pita chip base instead of uh, mm. potato chip. But that would did. be taking them in a whole different direction. Did they, does Lay's even offer? A I pita? don't know. But if we're doing, they said do as a flavor. So I'm I'm helping and saying they should have yeah, made this well, a pita chip. <laughs> you do it. You do it. What's all right? What's next? Fried green tomato. Fried green tomato. Here we go. Oh, this has ridges. I love ridges, Remind, by the way. Reminds this, me of Ludacris. Ever since, ever since Ruffles got ridges, Luda's got bitches. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> they're, they're, well, these that makes sense because these fried green tomatoes have that southern heritage, that southern lineage. I'm going to get a bite. Oh, these are good. Mm. 
This is really good. It's a strong flavor. Mm. It doesn't taste like fried green tomato, but it's really nope. good. I agree. Um, there's a tang to it that I like. It tastes like something you would have with like fried food, but I wouldn't say this is like. It tastes more like the mayo that they're showing on the picture of the fried green tomatoes. I totally agree with you. Than with the I'm tomatoes to, themselves. I want. There is a a a tomato-like flavor. I guess I don't know. I'm not, you know, it doesn't taste like tomato. No. I mean, the thing about fried green tomatoes is it mat the, the type of batter that you put on them, it really can vary. So, like, whose batter are we talking? Well, fried green tomatoes, the whole point is the taste and the and the texture. It's the whole thing. The experience of fried green tomatoes to me is the contrast of the hot sure. fried um, coating and the soft and, and maybe even still cool inside. Mm. Um, oh, and that good. contrast and how much I, <laughs> I, I enjoy that. And then you take that and a little dollop of whatever you're uh, – I like sour cream with them, but – Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. Sour yeah, cream no, is I, so underutilized in across oh, all cuisines. It's true. It's I love true. It. Okay, these, these, these are good. They're Fried good. green tomato, pretty good. They're still a little like smoky. The, They're good. Yeah, they're, and I'm getting a little back of the throat. I don't know if there's a spice to it, a, a noteworthy spice, but pretty good. All right, on to crispy taco. I'm psyched for this one, too. <laughs> As I as we keep talking, I still there is a faint um, ringing sensation of tomato in my mouth. So I don't know if that's food engineering, food science, some artificial flavor that's going to kill me in ten minutes. But uh, I'm 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 enjoying it. Crispy taco. Here we go. Mm. This is the most successful, in my opinion. Oh, the very <laughs> first thing that I taste. You tell me. You you tell me the very first thing you taste. It tastes like the taco the the taco meat that your mom made when you were like ten. But the, home, so the, you, the homemade kit. What's incredible is I can taste the lettuce. Oh, house. I get I get lettuce. Notes I have of, no idea. Notes of lettuce. How interesting. <laughs> and you know what? It's not just like, it's not arugula. It's not spinach. It's not, you know, field greens. It's good old iceberg straight, lettuce. Straight up iceberg. Totally. Which is what goes on a taco. Gosh darn it. This tastes just like home taco night. This is this is good. This is this, this is, is the winner in my opinion. This is really good. Definitive yeah. winner. I mean, the fried green tomato also like all of them are tasty. But if you're going for a specific flavor, this is this one wins. It captures the essence of what it purports to be. Yeah. It also happens to be delicious. I, for one, you and I um, sang the praises of the Taco Bell on the last uh, broadcast. I used to love the Doritos Taco Bell. Oh, Did yes. You, you recall? I mean, that was Doritos an unbelievable Loco flavor. Taco. Yes, of course. Why, why Why is that not still a thing? I don't know. Probably because their partnership with Doritos ran out. But it's a great question. Um, I also, I, I think this one's probably successful because at the heart of the kind of crispy taco that they're going for is a flavoring packet that you can even buy solo. You don't even need to get the, home, the whole kit. And if you mm. can sprinkle that on chips, you're starting from a good place. I agree with you. That's a it's a great it, it really does lend itself to a successful chip. Yeah, absolutely. And I say that as someone who buys those packets often for a home taco night. You and me both. Great stuff. Yeah, great stuff. So that's that's the winner, Crispy Taco. House of Carbs is giving Crispy Taco the uh HOC seal of approval. We should come up with a name for that. That should be sponsored too. I want to sponsor every effing thing that we do. I'm going to talk to Jeff Chow about it. I'll get back to you. I just want to let you know <laughs> the crispy taco came from a woman named Ellen Sarum and she says, my fiance loves crunchy beef tacos more than anything. I actually made them for one of our first dates and after three years, I can now finally say that I've mastered cooking his favorite dish. So that's really nice. I'm happy for Ellen and her fiance that we have just given them our seal of approval on this flavor. Hope they have a great time eating them. And this this has been exciting. I had, a, I had a great time eating them. I'm looking very forward to our very next uh, taste test. We'll have to think about um, what we're going to do. Maybe with should we? Well, I don't want to step on any more Jacoby Grantland food news stuff. Mm. But I am intrigued by by this coffee idea. Maybe I, there's a way we can uh, do an evolutionary. To. House, aren't yeah. you coming out here to, to LA? Soon? I am. Uh, that, I, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be in Los Angeles in about two weeks. Should we do an Instagram story coffee tour? Oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty effing good. Let's do that. Okay, great. I can't wait. Yeah, that's going to be a good one. Okay. Something for the for the hungry people to look out for. Absolutely. And the thirsty people. Absolutely. And the sleepy people. And the sleepy people. I'm always one of those. <laughs> me too. All right, Juliet. I think we've done it. We did it. Thanks for having me, House. You're a delight as always. Always. Thank you. All right, my friends, there we go. 
another House of Carbs. In the books, House of Carbs, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Friends, as always, please keep up the outstanding belly sourcing. We're getting great suggestions for topics and guests and pictures. We love the feedback and validation and all the ways that we are steering you and you're giving it back to us, telling us your wonderful experiences with the topics that we hit. We also have that email. You can hit us, houseofcarbsfans at gmail.com. Tons of traffic on houseofcarbsfans at gmail.com about the alcohol smuggling. My friends, I am pleased to report we are ready to discuss that wonderful topic. Next week's show, next week's House of Carbs, we are going to do some of the wonderful, I'm going to call it, uh, it's not quite out, uh, throat sourcing, I'm not sure, gullet sourcing that we received from all of the great drinkers out there. Please check in to next week's podcast. Give us a review on iTunes. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And in the meantime, my friends, let's stay hungry out there.